0: on this episode of This Calling.
1: In my mind, this is something that the Anglican tradition is sort of about. You know, we're, we're allowed to let the music speak a little bit, and that the emotional impact of the music is not to be dismissed or, or something to be embarrassed about, but it's part of what we're all doing together.
0: Welcome to This Calling, conversations about vocation. I'm Chris Arnold, a Christian who used to be an atheist, a software engineer who became a priest. And these are the calling stories of others, where they are, how they got there, and what they've learned along the way. In this episode, I talk to organist and choir director David Sindon. David serves at St. Peter's Episcopal Church in Ladue, Missouri, which is a suburb of St. Louis, and he's the co-host of the podcast, All Things Right and Musical. Before we head over to the conversation, I just want to give a little shout out to uh, the user Snosbury Gulper, who has been saying very nice things about this podcast in the Episcopalian subreddit over on Reddit. So thank you. And now here's my conversation with David. David, welcome to This Calling. How are you? Oh, thank you. It's great to be here. I'm doing fine. Thanks. Good. Right. Have you started Lent appropriately, penitentially? We're recording this uh, on the day after Ash Wednesday. So uh, did you get some ashes?
1: I did, yeah. Um, I, I got my ashes at noon. Um, and I, I, I think for the first time, I did not receive them again at the, at the later service. I still, <laughs> I still had sort of a, a passable smudge um, on my forehead, so I let that stand. <laughs> so where are you? Uh, you are an organist and choir director. That's right. I'm at Saint Peter's Episcopal Church in Saint Louis.
0: Where in Saint Louis is
1: that? Uh, we are in a town called Ladue, which is in um, Saint Louis County, to, to the west of the city proper. And I I understand that everyone in Saint Louis asks, "What high school did you go to?" Did you grow <laughs> up in Saint Louis, or are you from somewhere no, else? No, I I didn't. I'm um I I grew up a little bit in Cincinnati, Ohio, and then moved to Houston, Texas. So I went to high school. I went to a pretty outstanding high school. Actually, it was a public high school for performing and visual arts in Houston, Texas. Well, I want to dig into it to your past, but first okay. of all, uh,
0: describe the the shape of your uh, your current vocational life.
1: Yeah, well, um, you know everything everything that I do is revolves around making music for worship. So um, during the week, I see our different choirs. Um, different choristers on different days and um, we're always gearing up uh, to do um, the next the next service typically a Sunday Sunday morning Um, something like Ash Wednesday we we actually have a pretty pretty full musical load for that too so that that requires some advance rehearsal on everybody's part in addition to that we also have uh, occasional concerts we typically do one concert a year with orchestra something of a sacred nature um, that's just uh, outside of the scope of what we can, what we can perform on a Sunday morning. So for instance, this past fall, we did the Duraflé Requiem uh, with the chamber orchestration. Uh, and we also, we also have a monthly even song series here. So that's another thing that we, that we work toward is uh, singing at least one even song or lessons and carols uh, service a month. How many choirs are you working with? Well, the, there's the parish choir, and uh, they're really tremendous. I mean, it really is the finest group of singers that I've ever been able to work with uh, on a weekly basis. Um, there's also a chorister program. So we have choristers in training that are coming up through the ranks and um, kind of full, full-fledged choristers who are part of that group. And uh, we also have a fully professional choir called the St. Peter's Singers. And this is the group uh, historically at St. Peter's at Sun Evensong Services and um just next month actually they'll celebrate their 30th anniversary so uh that that group has been around for a while
0: so three choirs each right.
1: with very different
0: capabilities and strengths and weaknesses
1: exactly yeah huh
0: do you find it a challenge to to juggle those three or no.
1: <laughs> well, it, I mean it uh, maybe not so much a challenge but it is it is the the reality of what I do. I mean the way that I'm going to relate to an 8-year-old um, who's learning how to open the hymnal for the first time. <laughs> yeah. I'll I'll feel free to correct their posture and and give them some practical hints on how to turn to hymn 552. Um mm-hmm. whereas, you know, in, in the professional choir I don't need to make any of those kinds of recommendations. Yeah, There's, I hope
0: I hope they know how to open a hymnal by that point.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, those are those are seasoned um, seasoned veterans who love that service and love that repertoire. So how long have you been there at St. Peter's? I came here in the summer of 2015. So I think this is my fifth year uh, okay. through the, through the cycle.
0: How has it changed in those five years? Just a, just your relationship with the choir and with the other staff there.
1: Yeah. Well, um, it was it was really a very smooth um, entry for me as as far as uh, working with the choirs. Um, Saint Peter's really really values kind of having a a very broad and eclectic approach to making music in the liturgy. Um, one of the one of the strengths of this of this place is they love new music. They love to commission music, so they seek out um, composers uh, of all stripes and ask them to write music for the church. Um so that actually aligns really well with my my musical interests and my kind of what what makes me tick. Um so that's been uh, that's been a fun thing to be a part of with them. We've commissioned some new music together. Um Yeah, and I think you know things things were just so well established here by my predecessor who is named uh organist and 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 uh, what is it? Um organist and choir master emeritus is his title. Um so he I still see him um at least once a month he's he's uh, he drops in to say hello. So it's it's uh, in in many ways this is kind of a dream job. That things were were really well were, were running really well under his leadership and um it was sort of up to me to to step in and and just keep it going. Now I have to admit that I've been a priest for
0: uh I'm in my ninth year. 2010 was when I was ordained Um, and you know I grew up doing a little bit of musical stuff I played the clarinet and bass clarinet in in middle school and high school and um, was in a punk band in my early 20s -hmm. so uh, so I mean a little bit of exposure to music but then I got into you know working as a priest in the church and I, I realized that I knew practically nothing about uh, the work of church musicians. Um, I was grateful actually for a lot of good instruction that I got in seminary from, we had a church musician on our church staff, George emblem mm-hmm. uh, who taught us. And I think he was the second most influential professor that I had at seminary because um, he was just no nonsense about it, that, you know, it's vital to work out this relationship between, uh, the rector or the priest in charge of a parish and your church musician. And we better learn quickly how to, how to be a good uh, partner in that relationship. Right. Yeah. Um, so that is a very long introduction to a very broad question about um, your perspective from the organ bench. Uh of that relationship between priest and church musician.
1: Yeah. Well, no, that's a, that's a, that's obviously a very, a very important topic. Um, and, and I did gloss over, you said, you know, sort of how have things changed here at St. Peter's? Um, well, one thing has changed just a little bit earlier this month is that our rector uh, has resigned. Um, so we are in, in an interim for the first time in, in recent memory. And I'm in an in interim for the first time as a music director, so i'm I'm about to learn this whole clergy musician relationship uh, a couple more times <laughs> first with an interim and then ultimately I hope with a new rector um but yeah obviously obviously that's crucial and I think the I think what we always hope for is uh is just a very open uh working relationship um that someone uh would be would be honest about what they know and what they don't know and would sort of trust the expertise of the organist in certain areas and that the organist would, would likewise be honest about what he or she knows and doesn't know. Um, and would trust the judgment of the rector, especially when it comes to um, the institutional memory or uh, local traditions that a parish has. Uh, one is, So one of the kind of insights that I have into this is, is just around the question of morning prayer. Um, mm-hmm. There's, there's some kind of striking parallels between St. Peter's, and um my previous parish which is St Paul's Episcopal Church in Richmond Virginia um both of both of these places had very strong uh morning prayer traditions and and they could probably have even been summarized as you know quote unquote morning prayer parishes um but in in my time at both of them I sort of have witnessed the last chapters of that of that kind of liturgical style um that you know for better or for worse uh the the rectors have wanted to sort of move them kind of more broadly into, into step what, what most Episcopal churches are doing on a Sunday morning, which is uh, the the Eucharist weekly on a Sunday morning. So um, that's, that's been good to be a part of that because it's, it's shown me that, you know, as, as strongly as my personal preference might've been uh, exactly aligned with the rectors that I, I've had to sort of witness um, the the amount of conflict that that can generate a, a change like that can generate that a, a very long standing tradition like that um, can be can obviously be difficult to change um, so I feel like that was something that we did together that you know I, I was a partner in that change especially in in Richmond that I thought you know I've I've got a for these morning prayer services that I'm still doing I want to talk to um, the clergy and and make sure that we we feel good about what it is that we're doing. And then for our plan to, you know, revise morning prayer, uh, the way the morning prayer is done here and join it with the Eucharist, that I can be a partner with them in that. So I guess that's, that's one approach to, to answering this question is that it's not about, you know, obviously this, the, this kind of a job is not about me, um, but it's about how I can serve uh, the clergy as they in turn are, are serving the liturgical life of the parish.
0: I think it often puts, uh, church musicians in an awkward place because, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, you and I both know that the, the, what the canons say is that the rector has the final say on all liturgical matters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, in reality, a good rector will absolutely not pull that card out. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then, you know, so then, then, uh, if a church musician doesn't agree with a particular change in the liturgical priorities, you still have to implement those. Right. So I just imagine that it puts church musicians in uh, regularly in a, in a pretty uncomfortable position, hopefully not too regularly.
1: Well, I think it, yeah, I think it does. And it doesn't, you know, it's, it's probably like any other job uh, The maybe the, maybe the difficulty in, in being an organist is you're a department of one, um, but in, in, in any, in any sort of corporate structure, you know, your, your boss is telling you to do X and hopefully you've been part of the conversation that has led your department to do X. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, whether or not you agree with the, whether or not you agree with the final decision, right. It is, it is incumbent on you to help implement it. So I think that's true. Yeah, That's true of church music on some degree. Um, but again, you know what, what my real, what my hope is going into any kind of working relationship um, with a, with a rector or a priest in charge. Um, it's just that sort of open, uh, honest conversation. I feel like if we can have that, um, far enough in advance of whatever it is that needs to be planned, then, um, I can, I can really sort of roll with anything. So what do you wish that clergy knew about your
0: role, your function and, and your needs as, as a, as a professional?
1: Yeah, well, and, and I, I think everybody does this job a little bit differently, but I, I will say that I'm obsessive about listening to music. Um, so whenever I can, whenever I have sort of a, a email task or a data entry task that I can put on some um, music in my office, uh, some church music typically, and listen to that. And I try to I try to um, find ways to hear music that's new to me. So I'll listen to a lot of these um, webcasts from... Um, uh, bit larger American parishes like St. Thomas uh, Episcopal Church in New York City, um, and a lot of the Oxford and Cambridge colleges are webcasting. Um, so I, I try to stay kind of current with those, just because I hear so much music that's new. And then by doing that, I'll get new ideas about how to how to perform music that we have, or um, new ideas about music that I could potentially order and uh, rehearse with my choir. So that process, you know, is sort of constantly going on. And a lot of times, um, you know, I feel like I'm planning, uh, I have, I have a a running list of, of planning notes going. So I'm, I have different things that I want to do, you know, one, two, three, and even four years from now. Um, so that, that's, that's a part of how I operate. And I, and I think, you know, it's helpful for, it's helpful for clergy to know that, that, um, when, when they see my plans realized for, for this year that, you know, maybe some of the pieces on there I've actually been thinking about for, for three or four years. (laughs) Um, Wow. (laughs) That's sort of, and and depending on the complexity of, of um, how much time something is going to take, I may have actually rearranged all the music that we'll be singing for a certain season, just so we can accommodate uh, one new thing that we have to learn. So it's, it is a, it is a, that's sort of maybe, maybe if I had to pin it down. That's um, the most important thing I think a uh, clergy could learn about me and my process uh, as an orga- as an organist is that uh, my planning process is, is sort of really comprehensive and um, really thorough. I, I probably spend more time planning uh, music than I do anything else.
0: So how, how do you do that? Just what does that look like? You just listen to a lot of music and say... I want to do this at some point. What does it take to get there? Yeah,
1: so I, ha- I have a wish list of pieces, and um, so when when the rubber really kind of hits the road late in the spring and early in the summer, and I want to decide, you know, what is it that we're really going to do next year? I try to I try to go down that wish list of you know the pieces I've been dreaming about um, that I just I know would be a really great addition to you know that service or that season or the choir would really with this, you know, such and such a piece would really energize the choir. Um, and then, uh, so maybe I'll pencil in one or two of those first. Um, and then, and then there's the, the practical nature of filling in all the hymns, uh, filling in all the choral music for every Sunday. So that sort of comes next. And then as you do that, things uh, will shift around a lot. It's a very, <laughs> it's a very mysterious process. And I don't even want to be entirely honest with myself about how much time I spend doing that. It is, it is a lot of time. <laughs> um, I mean, and and for me, one of the most valuable ways that I plan is, um, you know, one year in advance. So so this year on Ash Wednesday, um, I made a I made a couple of notes to myself uh, about the services that we just did last night, and I have those in my file where I'll see them ahead of next year, and I can act on those. So that's that's one of the one of the wonderful things about this church music work, and I, I imagine for you too as a as a rector that, you know, that the liturgical year is coming back again. So if if there, Mm -hmm. if there are things that you want to try to improve for next time, there's a way to do that.
0: Yeah. Uh, And I often write those notes down and then misplace them by the next year.
1: (laughs) So what's, what's really been my friend in, in this, in keeping track of stuff is Google docs. So I do have, I just do have sort of one monster planning document and um, things are lifted from that into each year's, planning document um, so that that sort of helps keep help, helps me to keep track of things so how did you get into church music did you grow up
0: in the church in the Episcopal Church or in some other branch of Christianity
1: Well I grew up um, in the Presbyterian Church uh, PC, okay. PC USA and um, when we moved to Houston uh, my parents made sure that they found a church that they were um, excited about going to that had a, a sort of broad music program with, with opportunities for the uh, us kids and, and for my parents too. Uh, Cause my dad loved singing. Um, mm,
0: so you grew up with this kind of prioritization of music.
1: Yeah. So, so that like the, you know, going to church was a normal thing and, and music in church was a, uh, was an important thing for my family. Mm. Yeah. And um, from, from there, our, our uh, church organist, um, Stephanie Stevens, asked if I would be interested in taking organ lessons, and that was actually something I was very interested in. I had actually attempted to do it earlier, and so we, we kind of jumped at the chance to, to start me studying organ with her, and I've, I've really never looked back. Had you been studying some other instrument before that? Well, my, my major instrument growing up was violin. Um, oh, well, they're pretty... Pretty much the same. <laughs> I, I like to. I like to think that they are. Um, yeah, it, there's not a there's not a, a lot of direct experience, but I'm I'm really uh, uh, not a lot of direct relationship between the to between the violin and a keyboard instrument. But I'm really grateful that I have that experience. I've had to work a little bit harder um, t- to learn how to play the keyboard, um, but I just feel like I have this whole wealth of experience through string playing and uh, chamber music and. Uh, orchestra, orchestral playing that a lot of my colleagues just never had. So tell me about all of that experience. Was this in high school or into college as well? Yeah. High school was, um, was really incredible because I went to the high school for the performing and visual arts in, mm-hmm. in Houston. Um, so as a part of our normal week, um, this, the, all the string players in, in the school would get together for our strings. Um, and then on alternate days, we would all come together as a full symphony orchestra and we were learning, you know, major, um, major orchestral repertoire to put on uh, as concerts throughout the year. Um, and then in addition to that, we also had a chamber music program. So we would be divided up into um, trios and main, mainly string quartets um, in my, in, I think in my senior year, I got to be a part of a, a piano quintet. We did the, um, or uh, maybe quartet. Yeah. I think, well, there's, he has both, doesn't he? So how am I going to, how am I going to know what it is? <laughs> Yeah, uh, I'm going to say it's a quintet, uh, the Shostakovich Piano Quintet, which is just an extraordinary um, piece of music that, you know, uh, no high schooler has any business playing, <laughs> really. <laughs> so that, that, that whole um, school was full of, of remarkable opportunities like that. And they, they were even really sympathetic to me when I sort of unexpectedly at the end of my uh, high school career said, I would like to give my final recital, which was a required uh, recital for graduation. I said, I'd like to give this on the organ. And they said, oh, okay. We, we weren't really officially aware that you had been doing that, but sure, do what you want.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Bold. Yeah, right. Did they have an organ at the, at the school or did you have to go somewhere else for?
1: No, I had been, I had been studying all through high school um, off campus uh, with, with different organ teachers on different, organ, uh, different organs. There was an old um, electronic instrument uh, kind of tucked away in a corner somewhere in the, in the recital hall, but no one was ever really sure if it worked and I don't think it was ever used. Um, so I think there was at least the idea that that someone at that school might want to play the organ. But as far as I knew, um, at least for a while, I was the only one. So that raises a question that I've always uh, wondered about. What is it?
0: How different is it if you sit down at a different instrument? Is it, is it just like, you know, when I, uh, rent a car, um, the, lay, the 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 layout is basically the same, but I need to spend a couple of minutes figuring out like where the lights turn on and where the wipers are and stuff like that. But basically a car is a car or is each pipe organ so completely different that it's like you're just in a whole new landscape every time you sit down.
1: Yeah. Well, I, there's a little bit of both. I mean, I think you're right that a car is always a car when you jump from organ to organ, you know, the, the basic features are going to be there. Um, but the, the range of possibilities that you could have between two, uh, organs just in terms of size is really, um, that, that's where, that's where things can become, you know, the orders of complexity can increase, um, uh, dramatically. So, um, yeah, the, the organ that I play here, you know, it, it took me, yeah. um, it took me several months, I think, to really feel comfortable with it and to know, you know, what, how do I want to use this for playing hymns? Um, that's, and, and, and that's always a delicate balance because you don't want to be so soft that, you're, um, that people don't feel supported to sing. And of course, you don't want to be so loud that people are distracted by the, the volume of sound coming at them. So that, that can be one of the harder things that an organist does, um, especially if they're in a place where they can't really tell uh, what the organ sounds like in the room. Yeah, but if you if you sit at uh, if if you're used to you know a a small or moderate sized organ and then you go to play an enormous organ like we have uh, at the cathedral down here downtown here in St. Louis, or uh, or even at the the Roman Catholic Cathedral Basilica, that's that's really a huge organ. Um, Sometimes it's it's difficult to know where to start. So an, an organ like that can take a long time just to figure out how to play. Do you get any tips from, from people
0: who know organs better? Do they, do, 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 do organists have this kind of code language for giving each other shortcuts? Or do you just say like, I'm going to sit down and I just need to figure this out for me.
1: Well, um, I always ask for help because I, I find that uh, organists typically are a very collegial bunch. Um, so when, when I was tasked with playing the, uh, the cathedral Basilica organ, um, the the resident organist there Horst Buckholz was very very helpful in saying oh you should use this or have you thought about using this and this is a nice sound this combination works well no one will know the organ better than um, whoever plays it the most um, so uh, usually they're they're more than happy to to sort of show off their um, their knowledge of their of their own instrument it it is I, I mean the talking about talking about the way that organs make sound is a very sort of nerdy coded language. So typically when, when we can share our specialized knowledge with someone, <laughs> I find that we're, we're very happy to do that.
0: All right. So let's go back to high school. So you've graduated with this, uh, with this kind of closing, closing recital on the organ to everyone's mm-hmm. great surprise. <laughs> uh, what comes after that? We, you, you didn't start working at churches right away, I assume.
1: Well, actually um, so through high school, I am, um, I had my name on the, the substitute organist list, um, uh, that the American guild of Organists chapter in Houston maintained. And so, um, you you know, when a, when a organist at a church says, "I, I need to be away for whatever reason. Um, and they don't know, they don't know specifically who can call who they can call to fill in for them. Um, they will turn to that list and, and start trying names. And, um, there, there was nothing on there that indicated that I had just received my driver's license and would actually be able to <laughs> drive myself to their church. But, um, anyway, there, there, my name was, so, so I would occasionally get calls. Um, and, uh, especially, especially, um, uh, I guess my senior year, um, I was working more often than not. And I actually had a, uh, kind of three or four month interim organist gig at, a. Presbyterian church in, in the Northwest part of Houston.
0: Was anyone surprised when you showed up and they realized that you were a high schooler?
1: I, yeah, I think, I think sometimes they were, but um, I, I assured them that I could, I could do the job. And, and, and uh, I think the, the way, the way that that all works is that uh, I would have to find time in advance to go, and uh, try the organ and get things set up. So it always meant, uh, it always meant a a visit in advance uh, in some way. So whoever it was that was going to meet me saw me then and, and theoretically heard me play. So they knew, they knew that I uh, was at least competent enough to to (laughs) turn the organ on and make some, make some good sounds. So what came next? College Yeah. So, and then all through, all through that time, I was obviously looking at at where I wanted to go to school and auditioning at some places. And I ended up going to the Oberlin Conservatory of Music at at Oberlin College in Ohio. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is a a fabulous place for uh, organists to study. There's so many reasons why. One is that there are just a, there's just an incredible number of organs on campus. I think they're up to probably 26 or 27 at this point. Yeah. There's um, there's now four uh, concert instruments to speak of, and there's two two floors of um, organ practice rooms, um, so you can you can just sort of walk down those halls and find a small organ to practice on. So yeah, that's that's a that's a sort of dream um, for a young organist to be able to to study in a place like that.
0: Uh, and you kept on working for churches all through college, or did you take a break?
1: I took, a, I took a break my, my freshman year, and I think that, that's, that's probably good advice for anybody um, jump, jumping from you know, high school to college life. Um, but I think by my sophomore year, I was already getting roped into playing the organ at a, at a local church. It wasn't until my junior year that I um, found my way into uh, an assistant organist position in an Episcopal church. And that was really uh, the first time that my um, knowledge and love of liturgy began to develop. Um, I had a wonderful mentor there, uh, Jack Russell. And this was at uh, St. Peter's Episcopal Church in Lakewood, Ohio. Um, so wonderful parish uh, with, a, with a, a good music program. And in those days, Jack was the director of music. And I think I was his first assistant. I don't think he had had an assistant until, until I was hired. And this was a kind of school year sort of position that I was there um, really during term time. And then in the summers, I wouldn't be there at all. Um, So it was a great, it was a great um, addition to my academic education. I had this really practical experience of making music in the church and watching um, Jack, who's a seasoned church musician, watching him uh, work with the choir and and do everything that needed to be done. So you said this was the, the beginning of your,
0: Kind of the liturgical side of your work, yeah. What had it been before that? Just kind of the music that just happened to be in churches, and now you're beginning to develop the the rest of the worship sensibility.
1: What's changing? Well, that's interesting. So, I guess I would describe myself as being very liturgically minded through all of this. Um, I could tell. I could tell that there were there were things about. Um, Presbyterian services that worked and things that didn't work and you know certain hymns should be sung here and um, there's opportunities for music here. I, I wouldn't really be able to, I, I wasn't in a place where I could sort of describe any of that very well and um, I was I was sort of learning things about liturgical theology as best I could from, from the Presbyterian vantage point.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I, I remember when I was still working for the Presbyterians I signed myself up for the Presbyterian Association of Musicians. And they, they published a journal that was saying um, really shocking things that I'd never heard before. Like, baptism is really central to who we are as Christians, and you should have a baptismal font near the entrance of your church. And I thought, that's, that's kind of wild. Who, who thinks like this? Um, and uh, when, I, when I finally made uh, the kind of professional switch to the Episcopal Church, um, I, I sort of understood where they were getting it. I thought, oh, there really is a tradition around all this stuff, and there are churches for whom this is not an uphill battle uh, across the denomination. There are churches who have sort of been doing quietly doing this very well all along. And let me let me discover a little bit more about about these Episcopalians.
0: So, did you consider yourself a Presbyterian or later on an Episcopalian? What what what's going on in your heart at this point?
1: Yeah. So I did, I did still consider myself in a, a Presbyterian. Um, but I, I can't say enough good things about um, Jack Russell, who was uh, my mentor at St. Peter's. Um, I, th- I think he identified in me this sort of um, this restless liturgical longing and, and, and sort of um, went more than out of his way to explain mm-hmm. and um, edify me about the book of common prayer and, and, uh, the whole The whole world of Anglican church music, um, so much so that he and his wife susan russell who 's a, a priest, uh, attended my confirmation at uh, Trinity Cathedral in Cleveland uh, shortly before I graduated from college so that was when I, that was when I officially became uh, an episcopalian uh, it was may I think it was May first two thousand and four
0: so you decided there was something to this episcopal Church way of life.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean the, the the feeling really was very much uh like one of coming home. Yeah. Um with the kinds of things that I was I was sort of wanting to find in the Presbyterian church. I realized, aha, this already exists.
0: <laughs> you know, I hear that again and again and again. That that's the experience, right? People come to an Episcopal church liturgy or they spend time with Episcopalians and they, they say that maybe they didn't even know that they were looking for it. But there's this feeling of uh of coming home to a place they've never yeah. been before, which I always find it fascinating, especially how different some of the backgrounds of the people are. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so and uh, continue on with with your vocation story. So you graduated, I did. Well,
1: let me just say one okay. more thing about yeah, that yeah. because I had a I had a neat encounter in um, around the same time with the Lutheran theologian Marva Dawn. Mm-hmm. Um, she's the author of, of, uh, some, some books on church music called, uh, one of them is called reaching out without dumbing down. So th- there's, there's a line of hers about liturgy, about the liturgical tradition. And what she says is, uh, when you know the steps you can dance. And what she means by that is, uh, it's sort of an answer to the criticism, like, oh, the liturgy is boring because all of these words are always the same week to week. And I I think that there is that tendency in in the Presbyterian church and maybe some other mainline denominations to really focus on distinct words uh, for every week's liturgy that, you know, we have to have a very different confession of sin this week, or we have to write this call to worship this week. And that had been a part of my upbringing. And I thought, you know, that was just the way things were done. But when I turned the corner and saw the liturgical tradition and the prayer book tradition, and I read Marvadon's words, it all sort of made sense for me. I thought, yeah, you don't have to sort of unmoor yourself um, with different words and different contexts every week. You can actually return to um, a liturgical text, to uh, a fixed order of worship, and there can that can be very life-giving. And so that was really affirming to discover that at that time. You know, I, I try to strike this balance between uh,
0: changing things up just a little bit here and there from season to season usually Mm -hmm. and and keeping things the same. So I, I try to, you know, look over the course of the liturgy and I, I think, well, I will shift. With each change of a season, we'll shift two things. So we'll, this time we'll go with a different kind of overall structural format for the prayers of the people. Mm -hmm. And we'll go with a different post-communion prayer, right? something like that.
1: Yeah, because I mean I, I think there are, there are plenty of good options in in Episcopal liturgy to to make seasonal changes, um, but yeah, it's it's sort of over and against you know almost every word of of a service, uh, yeah. changing. And so that's sort of, that's what, sort of what she was referring to with that comment. But I I had um, two members of of the pair. I,
0: so I used to do more when I first came out of seminary. I was, you know wanted to flex all of my liturgical muscles, and I thought every service needed to to have a different character and different feel mm-hmm. and there's all these resources for us to play with um but then I had two members to the congregation who uh one was was sight sight impaired he, his his vision was bad enough that he couldn't read, but he could still kind of navigate the world and the other one just had a developmental delay and he just had trouble kind of processing written words in general. And so they both came up to me and said, you know, we've got the thing memorized. Hmm. (laughs) And so when you mix things up, we can't pray. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, all right, (laughs) I need to pay attention to that because now I was thinking that I was enlivening the liturgy and allowing people to participate more by freshening things up every week. right? And what I was doing was actually shutting some people out. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. That that reminds me of a, of a, a line by C.S. Lewis, I think, right. Who said, uh, Jesus said, feed my sheep, not experiment on my rats.
0: (laughs) Good old C.S. Lewis.
1: (laughs) All right. So when was it that you graduated from Oberlin? That was two thousand two thousand four. 2004. And th- th- I had a really neat experience right after graduation, um, where I, I got involved in a summer camp for boys called Lake Delaware boys camp. And this is in upstate New York. Uh, and so I felt, I felt really good. I, I, I had my organ degree under one arm and then I packed a bag of clothes under the other arm and I went up to this camp uh, in the woods and, um, This camp was 100 years old. It was founded in 1909. Uh, And everything was painted green. Uh, The dining hall and the camp chapel was at the other end of the street. Uh, I think the chapel was named after St. Joseph. Uh, So it's like a military green exterior and a very rustic kind of interior with um, an organ, which had never been electrified in any way. So um, when when we had daily mass every morning, like we did at 7.20 a.m., Wow. Uh, the boys would, the boys would come up to, to me and clamor to go back in the pump room and pump the organ. Wow. Cause if, if they, if they did that, it meant they didn't have to be sitting in the chair for the first part of the service. They still had to come out for the sermon when the, when the organ wasn't being pumped, but then they could, they could sort of go back there and it was a privilege to, to pump yeah. the organ at camp. <laughs> um, but that, that was really, that was really kind of, um, uh, an, an otherworldly uh, thing to do um go to this go to this sort of church camp where um you as a as a newly minted organist could actually play the organ every day and twice on Sundays because we had evensong of course so and and to play an organ
0: had you played uh an entirely mechanical organ before or was that a first
1: um actually Actually, uh, well, yes and no. There, there was one at Oberlin that sort of for academic reasons, you could, um, you could not hit the on button, but you could go over to the, the trundle bellows and st- ride the bellows down to pump yeah. the organ. Um, so I, it's something, that I had, I, something I had seen and something I knew had, would work, but um, I think that was probably the only situation I had been in where there was no other option. You had to pump the organ by hand. So between 2004
0: and then 2015, when you started at St. Peter's, what uh, what were you doing for those 11 years?
1: Well, sure. So I, I did get a graduate degree in organ um, performance from Indiana University um, where I studied with uh, Larry Smith. And I um, during those years, I was working at a, a Lutheran congregation in Bloomington, Indiana, uh, St. Thomas Lutheran. So it was It was a little bit hard for me to stomach that at first because it wasn't an episcopal church, and I had clearly fallen fallen in love with that and uh, wanted to be working in one but um I'm really glad I had that experience uh in a a very similar a very compatible liturgical denomination who so would that have been around about
0: the time that they were rolling out their new prayer book the cranberry book
1: yeah it it was around that time, and i think um I think I led some educational events around uh, what was in that book and and why it might be good for them to to adopt it and I think ultimately they did they they might have done that just right before I left actually um, and then uh, from from bloomington i I went up the street to Indianapolis, where I became the assistant organist at Christchurch Cathedral um, and this is a really great place because it it sort of helped me. Uh, Wrap all my all my skills together uh, and and raise the bar on everything. So, everything I thought I was doing well, I, I quickly realized I needed to be doing a little bit better. <laughs> and I had a very um, a very exacting, uh, very demanding uh, boss in Fred Bergamaster. He was the organist and choir master at that time, and um, Fred had uh, very high standards for music. And I was exposed to all kinds of. Um, Anglican choral pieces that I had only heard on recording. I mean, his choir was, was doing them week in and week out. So we had a, a choral mass on uh, every Sunday. And um, that, that, was a great, that was a great way. It, it really was almost like another degree. Um, I was there for four years and I had so much to learn when I started. And then at the, at the end of that time, I was really able to settle in and, and kind of thrive, I think. Did you ever
0: have a moment where you thought
1: I've, I've bitten off more than I can chew uh, I, I did, <laughs> especially especially early on. Uh, there, there was one moment in particular where there was a very, very difficult organ lick um, that concluded a piece. Um, this is the Nisa Christi. If you have anyone listening to this podcast who knows this piece, I'll be surprised. It's the Nisa Christi by Kenneth Layton. Um, and this, this is actually a piece that was written for uh, Christchurch Cathedral. So understandably, it was very dear to fred's heart because he was the one who had commissioned it and in the rehearsal i really could not play the conclusion and so i approximated something with my fingers and he turned around and he, he didn't raise his voice but he just turned around and he said you need to practice that every day until we perform this and he was absolutely right i did <laughs> and he did not need to say that to me i was already sort of embarrassed enough that i couldn't play it um and i i i did my due diligence on that and um that that really uh, has become one of my favorite pieces of music. That is such a such a tr- tremendous mass setting. Now I want to hear the lick. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll uh, I, I have actually I have a recording that I could send you uh, for the podcast. So I'll I'll send that your way. Well, I
0: I hope that there's a a, a dedicated episode of writing and musical where you just talk about that whole mass setting. That's my recommendation.
1: I think there needs to be. I'm, I'm, I'm jotting
0: that down. That's a good opportunity for us to slide sideways into that, uh, that topic. So you have sure. a podcast. Yes, all things right and musical. Yeah, I'm going to put the link to it in the show notes, of of course. Uh, so tell me about that. Why did you get into this uh, lucrative world of podcasting?
1: <laughs> um, well, I, I forget exactly how I got into this at first. I think I. Um, uh, I think in, in college, I even sort of invented a podcast before anybody knew what a podcast was. And I would post like an MP3 file to my website that people could listen to. Um, and then the, the next one I remember doing was um, we had this really remarkable um, daily Lenten preaching service at uh, St. Paul's in Richmond. And I realized that I, I put so much thought into the organ music that I played before those services that people probably had no idea um, that I just started recording a, a podcast every week that that mentioned day by day what I would be playing and why it might be appropriate for Lent or why it might even be appropriate for that particular day, um, and um, so I, I sort of knew I sort of knew that that existed and I had in the back of my mind that I wanted to do something kind of more more extensive with podcasting, and um, I really wanted I I didn't really have any. Uh, clearer picture than I I wanted it to be about liturgy and music, and probably I needed a partner. It would make sense if my partner was a priest, since I could be the musician and the priest could speak more to liturgy. So um, uh, while I was at St. Peter's, we had a priest come join our staff, uh, Ian Lash, and Ian is now the rector at uh, Grace Church in Jefferson City, Missouri. Uh, But he and I have been uh, co-hosting this podcast for a couple years now. And, uh, we both, we both really get get a kick out of it coming up on 50 episodes. That's right. Yeah. Do you have a plan to celebrate 50? Uh, we don't, I think we're going to, we're going to keep humming along. Um, we're going to, 50 is just going to be sort of a normal episode. I think we'll celebrate when we get to a (laughs) hundred. So that'll that'll be a couple, couple more years (laughs) at this rate. Yeah.
0: Well, it's, it's a good podcast. I am a liturgy geek. I have an MA in liturgical studies. So, um, to be perfectly frank, when I first found it, I said, darn it, that, that they've made a podcast about exactly the kind of thing that I would be likely to do a podcast about. Oh,
1: well, that's good. That's good to hear because because I, I sort of imagine it as exactly the kind of podcast that I would want to listen to if I weren't making it.
0: Uh, yeah, it is. <laughs> it's the kind of podcast that I uh, have already decided to download all the episodes. I, I've listened to some here and there, but... Um, and I thought, you know, I just need to binge listen to this. because okay. I don't have enough podcasts in my life.
1: <laughs> it is hard to keep up with all the good ones. Well, thank you, thank you for listening.
0: So, uh, what is the favorite part of your of your job?
1: Um, yeah, I think there uh, one of the one of the um, parodies you hear of of the church musician's life is, um, you know, someone who's a full-time church musician will be talking to someone at coffee hour. And, you know, I think we all have this story and inevitably the the person who means very, very well, will just say, Oh, so, so what do you do the rest of the week? And you have to sort of reveal to this person, Oh, well I, I do this. I mean, just because you see me on the organ bench and in front of the choir on Sunday mornings, um, doesn't mean that that's all I do. This actually takes a lot of preparation and a lot of work. So, um, I really enjoy the work that I do because I know that it it, um, it all manifests itself in worship, and so for me the the most enjoyable things are um, first of all being in worship uh, with the choir and with the clergy, with the congregation, being together in worship, and and then an added level to that is when when something just goes um, exceptionally well. Um, there there are a handful of 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 times that I think the, the choir and I have, have sensed that together. Um, that's, a really, that's a really wonderful thing to know when the, when the work really does pay off uh, the way that you hope it does, or if you've even gone kind of one step beyond what you thought you'd be able to achieve. Um, Those sort of transcendent moments yeah. when there's more than just you and the music. Exactly, yeah. And this, this is something, in, in my mind, this is something that the Anglican tradition is sort of about that um, you know we're we're allowed to let the music speak a little bit, and that uh, the the emotional impact of the music is not to be is not to be dismissed or or something to be embarrassed about, but it's part of it's part of what we're all doing together. I'd love to hear what in your words what
0: what's the relationship between music and the rest of the spiritual life.
1: Well, I think. Um, Music probably has a lot to teach us about discipleship um, that it, it is something that uh, invites you to tend to it every day i 'm um, not a pianist, but I, I know there was a there was a famous pianist who talked about practice, and he said uh, if i don 't practice for one day, I know it, but if i don 't practice for two days, my audience knows it or or something like that that we as as musicians, I think we do have um, Uh, really intimate knowledge about uh, what it is that we hope to achieve with music and what it takes. So if, if we don't put in the work, I think we're the first ones to know. And if if we ever don't put in the work to the degree that the choir knows or the congregation knows, I think we feel, we feel really badly about that. So that's, that's sort of our, um, our calling. It's to regular, regular practice, regular rehearsal and uh, regular work in this, in this music that does, it does reward us. It does feed us. Um, and I think it feeds us, uh, when we, when we tend to it. Is music prayer for you? Yeah, I think it is. Um, so much of the music that I do as an organist is untexted. And, and, um, even in, even in a lot of that music that may or may not necessarily be sacred. Um, and that, that's kind of a funny definition. Uh, cause I think there, there's plenty of music that's based on a, on a hymn tune or based on some sacred melody that, you know, may not have been composed by anyone who had real, real sacred intention with it, but that doesn't matter. Ultimately, I think if you use it in the context of the liturgy and someone recognizes that tune, then I think that piece is doing its job. But uh, by the same token, if there's something that uh, was composed um, without with even without a sacred melody or any kind of sacred connotation whatsoever. But there's, um, there's a real resonance with that piece to a certain season or a certain liturgical day. Um, Those are really moments of of tremendous prayer for me Uh, when you find, when you find kind of just the right note to strike with a piece of music. Um, And especially, you know, as you set up something uh, before, before a liturgy that, that you and the congregation can enter into together. Uh, those are those are really supreme moments of prayer for me.
0: Do you think that music tells you anything about
1: God? Um, sure. I think I think uh, 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 you're you're sort of asking me to be a theologian, which I I don't I don't pretend to be at all. But I imagine God is the kind of thing that uh, that we look for lots of things to tell us about. So I think there are things in in music that help us to help us to help reveal facets of the divine. Um, One of the most interesting to me is, is silence. Any, any good musical performance, I think it's going to take place out of silence. And it's, it's kind of interesting to think, well, what is, what does silence even mean? Um, Because we, we have scientists who can create really acoustically sterile environments. And even there, if you, if you walk into the environment, you become, really, uh, aware of your own blood coursing in your veins and your own heartbeat, because those things become incredibly loud all of a sudden <laughs> when, when every other sound drops away. So, um, it's not that silence is an absence uh, of anything. Um, but it's, it's a way in which, uh, things can emerge and things can develop. Um, and there's also, you know, pieces of music that have unexpected silences in them that are, that are really crucial to the To the structure of the piece. Um, I'm thinking about one Bach chorale prelude in particular that just sort of leaves off kind of unexpectedly before, before Bach brings the work to a close. And also the ending of the Sibelius uh, fifth symphony was one of my very favorite pieces of music. Um, The music just builds and builds and builds until it can build no more. And then all of a sudden you have almost these, almost these hammer blows of these chords that are just separated by long periods of silence. And you sort of you sort of think how can this how can this be? And um, it's actually uh, it's actually sort of the perfect way to end that piece of music. It's really it's really remarkable. So there again, I mean, uh, there's no there's no kind of overt um, sacred connotation with that music, but but there's something unarticulatable. There's something that I can't articulate about that piece of music uh, that does speak to uh, the divine nature. I just heard the other day about a pop music producer, uh, Bob
0: Claremountain, who apparently is famous for inserting like dramatic pauses at the, at the end of songs that he's produced. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it got me thinking about the, the, the nature of the, that pregnant pause and how much silence, especially kind of tactical silence, silence that's inserted at a place where we expect the sound to keep going. Mm -hmm. invites us to kind of fill in all the blanks and realize how much of the the music or the the tech uh and it invites us to Mm. to fill in all the blanks internally and helps us to realize that our hearts have been joined to the the work all along that this you know music or this play or something is not happening outside us that we're observing but we're participating in it just by being listeners Um, so yeah and I I have a contemplative bent so I spend a lot of time thinking about silence as a a, a medium for the dialogue between um the human heart and and God um uh, silence is is remarkable yeah yeah um but yeah I've heard about these kind of perfectly scientifically acoustically sterile environments and and they sound
1: terrifying to me <laughs> they really do <laughs> yeah the the real world doesn't operate that way. Yeah.
0: Thank God for a little noise. Um, So what is the thing that you find the most frustrating, the most discouraging, the hardest part of of your work?
1: I think that in, in the preparation uh, there are, there are things that, that can be frustrating. You know, why is it taking me so long to learn, to learn this? Why is this so hard? Well, and, and by the same token, why is it, why is it so hard for the choir to learn? Um, a very wise mentor once told me, uh, there are no bad choirs, there are only bad choir trainers. So whenever I sense myself getting frustrated with the choir, I need to quickly turn that back around on me and say, all right, what's really going on here? Is this piece too difficult? Are we trying to learn this too quickly? Uh, is there a different way that I can approach this? And uh, there's almost always a, a solution, but um, sometimes sometimes that work can be frustrating. Do you see yourself as a pastor to the choirs? Yeah, I think I I think I, I I would be irresponsible if I if I said no. I mean, um the I think in a lot of churches the choir is kind of the largest regularly meeting small group in the church. Um so it's not enough for me to just say, all right, everybody, open your hymn books, let's sing, okay, let's go into this. There has to be something more to it. And so um for me, it's it's important to try to talk um, to some degree and, and not, maybe not at every rehearsal, but it's important for me to talk to some degree about the music that we're singing and why, and the liturgical year and our faith and, um, and beyond that, just to be, just to be present with the members of the choir and to, and to, to live with them.
0: All right. I've been asking everybody this to recommend a piece of, popular culture that has nothing to do with anything except for (laughs) blowing off some steam and relaxing so a book piece of music movie video game tv show (laughs) i saw
1: saw that you were going to do this and i meant to make some notes and i failed (laughs) don't overthink it (laughs) um let let me look at my my recent netflix history here oh well i will say um um I've, for for whatever reason i've always been a little bit interested in auto racing and i i for for a while really? <laughs> yes and for a while so i lived in indianapolis right so i i did actually go to um indianapolis 500 practice i didn't go to a race or anything but i did go to practice and it's just a single car going around the track is unbelievably loud um and then for a while i got into nascar and and that was kind of not really what i wanted to be into i i realized Um, But recently I've gotten, I've gotten into formula one. And the way that I did that was my brother-in-law showed me the um, formula one drive to survive documentary on Netflix. Um, And that's a, that's a, it's a really well done uh, multi-part series kind of overview of, of their, um, of their previous season. And I think, um, so I I did actually watch all of this year's uh, formula one season, the 2019. And I think Pretty shortly here, Netflix will be coming out with um, the second season of that of that of that documentary um, that will that will chronicle what just happened in, in Formula One. It's a pretty extraordinary sport, and the the champion uh, for for this last year, Lewis Hamilton. So he, he's now um, dominated the sport for I think the past four or five years. Pretty remarkable guy. Is he your
0: favorite? Do you have a favorite?
1: Um, well, I, I don't like to root for the, uh, I, the problem is I don't like to ever root for the guy who's, who's on top. So I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm sort of interested in this young guy who's driving for Ferrari, uh, Charles Leclerc. Um, I feel like he, he's going to break out sooner or later and become a pretty, a pretty uh, incredible force to be reckoned with. Have you seen Senna?
0: It's that, the yes. movie about Ayrton Senna's life. Yes, yeah. I did see that.
1: Yeah, the, the, I mean, like like anything else, there's a there's a, a tremendous amount of tradition um, that you know you you hear referenced in something like, um, uh, well, you might even hear referenced in a race. But then to go back and and sort of get caught up on the stories that everybody else already knows is uh, is a pretty humbling and interesting experience.
0: My dad is a huge Formula One fan, so hmm. uh, I grew up with it kind of in the background. But uh, yeah. I haven't, I haven't been able to keep up with it. I'm a premier league uh, fan and okay. now we have a basketball okay. team here in Oskosh, So I, I pay attention to basketball now, which is new for me. And I, I, see. I can only follow about two sports at, at once. So
1: Yeah. And, and I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure out what it is because it, it, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to me that I'm, I'm at all interested in auto racing. I think it's something about the marriage between man and machine. Hmm. It's sort of what, sort of what I do on the organ already. Yeah. So yeah. sort of seeing that manifested in a different, in a different area, I think is just really is a, a, a welcome diversion for my brain.
0: Well, that about wraps it up for this chat. Thanks for talking to me. Well, it was a pleasure. Thanks for asking and, and thanks for uh, taking the time. Yeah. Have a holy Lent. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to my conversation with David Sindon. Again, if you'd like to get in touch with him, be sure and look in the show notes for links. You can reach me on Twitter at AppleTreePods, Pods. And on Facebook, there's a page for Apple Tree Podcasts. If you search for that, you'll find us. Feel free to like and subscribe and review and share this with anyone who might be interested. The intro music is called Cheerful by Bird, 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 and the closing music that you're hearing now is called St. Mary's Falls by Tom Ganaway. Again, thank you so much for listening. If you're listening to this in Lent, I hope you have a holy and blessed Lent. I'm Chris Arnold, and I'll talk to you next time on This Calling. Bye for now.